You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening and welcome everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday the 27th of July 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. And I'm having I'm having stream problems here. I'm not too sure if YouTube is working. Uh, Sermon Audio is not working for whatever reason and it doesn't seem to be... I don't know. I don't almost... I waited for a while. Just doesn't seem to be going through and I've even checked on the sermon audio page not popping up at all so hopefully it's working on youtube and um i will be probably just be posting probably something on sermon audio later on and it just looks like it's not going to work on that uh, hopefully it's working on youtube or else this is just going to be a, a podcast only program whatever the case welcome everybody thanks for tuning in thanks for listening uh, on tonight's program, we're going to be returning to looking at uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Tonight's topic, we're going to be largely dealing with uh, the Covenant of Grace, and uh, we were go- we are going to be looking at um, basically topics around that. Trying to keep it as simple as possible. I've dealt with covenant theology before and as much as possible. I I, I just want to keep it as basic as possible, not to lose anybody, because I think years ago when I used to be a Reformed Baptist, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith for a while, before that I was Independent Fundamental Baptist, That's that was the churches I was in for a number of years after I was converted, you could say Arminian, um, Dispensationalist, that would have been about my background, then eventually being convinced of the doctrines of grace, and then eventually be convinced more and more of confessional Reformation Christianity. So uh, if you could let me know anybody in the chat, if hopefully YouTube's working, I'm not sure if um, if I am just talking to myself here, whatever the case is, it will be going through on podcast and that will be uploaded later to the website. Also, there'll be no program next week, uh, Tuesday next week. Um, I will be going on holiday and uh, it will just be me uploading a maybe uploading a podcast into the week maybe not we will see on that um it might be another one around this topic as well we'll see just check back to the facebook page and but there's a good chance that there won't be any program for that now let's begin the program tonight looking at Excellent. Thanks so much for list, uh, for telling me. Um, somebody there in the chat. <laughs> yes, it's working. It's working on YouTube. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, Sermon Audio, this is all going through Sermon Audio. And Sermon Audio is not working, frustratingly. Uh, and But they are multi-streaming it through to YouTube. So it normally 
goes through both of them. Only YouTube is working tonight. So, um, not sure about that. And Okay, so let's go up to Psalm 41 tonight. We're going to be, as we, we've been doing for quite a while now, and this is the 41st show we've been doing this, reading through the Psalms. Um, sometimes we've also played clips of the Psalter being sung because I encourage you all to sing through the Psalter. And the Bible says to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and um, th that we would have, as referred to as the word of Christ as well. I think it's Colossians 3.16. So it's very important that we do that, and it's very important that we're very familiar with uh, the Psalter, especially going through difficult times, um, the early church sung the Psalter. We could get into things about exclusive psalmody or anything like that, but I would just encourage people at least to have sung the Psalter. I have friends of mine who are not exclusive psalmody and they're not quite there yet, but they do sing the Psalter. And at least start there, start somewhere, make steps towards, I think whatever our positions are, we should be singing the Psalms. Okay, so Psalm 41, we'll read through this and make one or two comments before we get into our main topic, which is on the covenant of grace and um, and on covenant theology. Again, we'll try and keep it simple tonight. We'll try and, by God's grace, look at the overall themes and, and, and try to... I don't want tonight's topic to scare anyone. I don't want it to seem kind of esoteric or hidden or anything else. I'm going to give you the bare bones to to see at least I'm not going to debunk every single straw man argument that's been raised against reformed theology but hopefully by God's grace you'll have a better idea of what the the catechisms teach and what reformed theology teaches and then you need to go away yourself and study yourself uh, nothing I, I say tonight is probably going to convince you completely from one side to the other You've got to go away yourself and and study it and think about these things and uh, pray to Almighty God that He will show you these things. So, so Psalm forty one. Let us hear God's holy and infallible word, and we'll, we'll pray before we begin. Father, Lord in heaven, please help us, O Lord. Please uh, open our eyes that we may behold great and wonderful things from Your Word. Bless us, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My, my enemies speak evil of me when will he die and his name perish and if he comes to see me he speaks lies his heart gathers iniquity to itself when he goes out he tells it all who hate me whisper together against me against me they devise my hurt an evil disease they say clings to him and now he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted 
who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Um, it talks about at the beginning here, blessed is the one who considers the poor because that is that is the characteristic fruit again of someone who is a believer, a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who uh, considers the helpless and the powerless. The, uh, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. None of us deserve this deliverance. None of us deserve this help from the Lord. But the Lord is merciful to those who, who do, how do we know who are those who've been, the Lord has shown mercy to, they've been changed. And this is very much speaking about spiritually. Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this, I know that you are well pleased with me. And we need to seek deliverance from the Lord in time of trouble. When evil plots against us, but realizing as well, more and more, no matter what happens, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. We're, we're worshiping him, we're praising him, we're giving him the glory from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So that ends the first book of the Psalter. That's book one. And so next Tuesday, we're going to be looking, well, not next two, two weeks' time, anyway, whenever we next do a program, uh, we'll be starting book two, which is Psalm 42, I think to about, I think it's Psalm 72. So we'll be looking at Psalm 42 next, next, the next show. So if you have a copy of the, we the Westminster Larger Confession, we're going to be looking at, um, do have it marked off here? Yeah, we're going to be starting at question 30, working forward from there. And the last time we were looking at the source of misery in man. Where is the misery, the pain, the suffering from? What is the source of this? Is it... You could ask the question, is it outside of man? Is it because of his environment? Or is it because of what's inside him? His own heart. Now, we know from what we looked at last week and also from the fall of Adam and other things we could look at, that the source of misery comes from sin doesn't come from God. Of course, God is in control of all things, but we are the source of our own downfall, mankind. And now the question comes up here in the larger catechism. Doth God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Because 
when you look at what happened and when you look at all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, what do we deserve? We have to start here. We have to start with what we deserve. We have to think about that because otherwise it would be very easy for us to become bitter and think that we deserve more from God. Now, I want you to consider right now, what do we deserve? What do you deserve? You're listening to this. Do you think you deserve better from God? Do you think you're being hard done by when you go through difficult times? Or do you, as I hope you do, see God's purposes in that suffering? I was um, preaching on Deuteronomy chapter 8, which was under the, the theme of remember the Lord and in times of plenty. And this Deuteronomy chapter 8 is Moses addressing the people of God before they pass over the Jordan and take the promised land. And warning, uh, Moses was warning them not to forget the purposes of God, to realize why they went through the suffering that they went through, the hunger and all this kind of thing, through the wilderness, not to forget his ways, and not to forget the Lord's strength. Because in all these things, we could think, oh, my own strength has brought me this wealth. We could think in our foolishness that there's better ways that we can learn from, as sadly we look at the book of Judges, we see that God's people learned, learned from the way of the heathen and they learned bad ways, they learned bad habits, they learned horrible things, and then they fell into horrible things. There was some examples at the end of the book of Judges to where that went. You know, when it repeated this a couple of times, there was no king in Israel, but every man did which is right in his own eyes. That was where they were. So we've got to realize that as the Lord has given us so much, that we have received far more than we deserve. We have no reason to be bitter. We have no reason to be in any way anything but grateful to God for those who he has saved. And if you are saved, be grateful that he has saved you. And realize that we deserve nothing but death and hell. We only deserve the wrath of God because of who we are. You start from there. You start from what sin deserves. You start from that point of view. You come with the question, does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Because that's all we would deserve. And if he left us to perish in sin and misery, he would not be unholy to do so. He would not be un unrighteous to do so. Now, because of what was done in Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of what Christ paid for. It was the right and just thing to forgive us our sins because of what Christ did in our place. But at the same time, had the Lord in his wisdom and mercy left us in our sin misery, he would not, he'd, he owed us nothing, is the point I'm making. 
And when we come from that point of view, we realize what we deserve and we've received far greater, far more than what we do deserve. The answer to question 30 says, God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works. But of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it and bringeth them into the estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. So now we're getting into the covenant of grace. Now, the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is this. In the covenant of works, this is the, the covenant before the fall. This is the condition. They were both gracious, by the way. There's an, an extent in which they were both gracious. God, even in his sinless state and everything else, it was only because of the covenantal agreement between Adam and God, Adam and all mankind, or between God and all mankind, which is in Adam. Because of God condescending to man that anything is quote-unquote owed, okay? But we're going to deal with strictly within the covenant. Um, and in the covenant of works, man must perform perfect personal obedience to the law of God. The test being, of course, the whether he would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would test what? Very, very simply, did he love God? With all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, and all his strength. And did he love his neighbor as himself? Same law. That's a summarization of the Ten Commandments, by the way. But that same law is seen and was seen prior to the fall. The moral law. The eternal law. That unchangeable law. That law which was written with the finger of God upon tables of stone. It's summarized in different ways, but it boils down to the same thing. Love for God, love for your neighbor. Why love for your neighbor? Because they were created in the image of God. Now, so that's what it means by the covenant of works. It's not to say that man is owed anything, strictly speaking, but based upon the agreement which God made, the promise which God made. Now, Adam, of course, broke this covenant of works. And now it's only a gracious covenant by grace through faith that any human being after that point as a sinner can have a relationship with Almighty God. Think of it like that. As soon as Adam fell, there's no possible way of perfect personal obedience. No possible way. Man's greatest deeds are but filthy rags from that point onwards. The thoughts of his heart are but evil continually. By nature, man is a slave of sin. He's a servant and a slave of it. So the only hope that he can have is by mercy, pity, the Lord's chesed, loving kindness, can be translated different ways. It can be loving kindness, mercy. In the ESV, it translates steadfast love, 
kind of there's a kind of a covenantal love aspect to it as well. So the relationship, the condition changes from the pre-fall covenant, the pre-fall relationship of man toward God changes. After that, everything needed for salvation needed to be provided by God. It was no longer dependent on the personal, perfect obedience of any man. It was like that prior to the fall, but no longer after the fall. Question 31. With whom has the covenant of grace, sorry, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The answer given here is the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam. And in him, with all the elect as his seed. Now, here's when we get into kind of, I would say, difficult enough territory where even within the Westminster divines, there were differences of opinion. Um, so it says that the covenant of grace was made with Christ as a second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. Strictly speaking, every single Reformed person would agree with that, but the way this is described in practical terms um, can be a bit difficult to explain. One way I would explain it is this. There is the visible expression of the covenant, the administration of the covenant, and in the New Testament, be like those who receive baptism. As Presbyterians, we believe that's believers and their children. Believers and their children. As it was in the Old Testament, believers and their children. The sign and seal of the Old Covenant was circumcision. The sign and seal of the New Covenant is baptism. So, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him all the elect as his seed. See, there's... There is those people, you know, we've got the invisible church, those for whom Christ died, those who, for whom their sins have been paid for, strictly speaking, that is the case. But then also on earth is also, I would add, there's the visible expression of that reality. Not everybody who's in, oh, <laughs> in a bottle, getting a bit excited here. Not everybody who's in the church, not everybody's in your church, is necessarily a born-again believer is what I'm saying. And then there's, there, there's a spiritual reality, those who, by faith, trust in Christ, as opposed to those who profess to believe in Christ, the administration of the covenant. So there's a, there'd be a slight distinction I would make there. Question 32. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? answer here the grace of god is manifested in the second covenant the second covenant is the the covenant of grace the grace of god is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him and acquired faith as the condition to interest them in him promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith 
and with all other saving graces, and to enable them unto all holy obedience, as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to, to God, and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. So how, how is the grace of God manifested or kind of shown in the second covenant? The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant, going back over this again, in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator. He offers it freely to Christ. You can look back all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and he'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. This has been provided in the second covenant. You see, there's a mediator provided in the second covenant. This is comparing the pre-fall, before the fall, and after the fall covenants. These two covenants and how to life and salvation by him, by the, by the mediator. This is the Lord Jesus Christ requiring faith as the condition to interest in them. Again, it's by grace, the covenant of grace. The condition before is perfect personal obedience. Promiseth and giveth his spirit to all his elect to work in them by faith. So that's the difference. The As the evidence of truth, somebody's been converted, the manifestation of grace. There's a, there's a certain degree and type of manifestation of grace, but it is different. And it would it's very, very dangerous. It's a d- different topic to introduce grace into the the pre-fall covenant and then flatten it out in both. Oh, faith is required in the pre-fall. Be careful with that because that is kind of um I see it with some of the people who would believe in the new perspective on Paul kind of theology and federal vision, that kind of thing. So we need to see, yeah, there is a degree of grace, but it is not grace as in showing mercy upon a sinner in the old covenant. It was based upon perf- personal perfect obedience. And there is a difference between the the first covenant with Adam, the covenant of works, and the second covenant, the covenant of grace with his elect, essentially those who are in Christ. Question 33, was the covenant of grace always administered after one and the same manner? Now, here's where we get into difficult waters and difficult um, to explain because there's going to be differences among Christians, especially with those who would be, by definition, covenantal of various different degrees. But we'll we'll do our best by God's grace. Question 33, the answer was the... So the question is, was the covenant of grace always administered in the one and the same manner? Is it always out? And you'll get people who will believe that the new covenant is the covenant of grace. The old covenant isn't the old covenant of grace. The old covenant in terms of prior to the time of Christ, uh, the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or any of the Old Testament covenants and makes a big distinction between all of them. Um, it says here in question 33, the answer here about this question, the covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administration of it under the old Testament were different from those under the new, the covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administrations of it under the old Testament were different from those under the new. Basically, the the outward forms of it are different, but the substance of it are the same. Um, 
the substance in this case is in the same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They, in the Old Covenant, looked towards that same Savior. They were saved in the same way. They trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ even before he came, trusting in the seed of the woman that would come, promised in Genesis 3.15, and then developed further and further and further with more and more types and shadows developing the whole idea of the Lamb that would provide atonement in the place of the people, the suffering servant who would come. So, so the same in substance, but different in what people might call accidents or outward forms. No longer circumcision. No longer Passover. Now you have baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's just one or two examples there of how it's different in administration. No longer just circumcision of males or the administration of that sign and seal to males. Now in the new covenant, there's neither male nor female, there's uh, slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're told in Galatians chapter 3, and men and women both are baptized. That's just one way that the administration of it, the outward administration has changed. But at its core, there is the same truth. I'll give you one example of a text that points towards this reality of the same substance in both the Old and the New Testaments. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, And just the first few verses here. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers are under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for the bodies were scattered in the wilderness. But that same spiritual food, that same spiritual drink, that's what we mean by the same substance, Old and New Testament, same Savior, same truth, same God, same King. That's what we mean by that. But the administration of it changes from one to another. In the Old Testament, bloody. The, the, the sacraments were bloody. In the New Testament, no longer bloody because the blood of Christ has been shed. And now you have baptism, which is no longer bloody because it's 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 um, a sign and seal of washing away of the filth in terms of sin. And then in the Lord's Supper, we have bread and wine, which nourish and sustain uh, the body and point towards how Christ does that these are all pointing so spiritually and these don't benefit you one iota unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ it's only by faith the difference between the sacraments and the word of God is this the, the sacrament the, the word of God is the visible or the, the um 
the audible word of God. But, and, and these must be tied with the word of God, otherwise they're meaningless, but the, the sacraments set forth Christ visibly. And what I mean by that is this, that by trusting in Christ, Christ washes away our sins. He cleanses us from the, f- the filth of our flesh, you know, the picture of, or, of baptism. And then Christ nourishes us as we walk with him, as we feed on him spiritually now. By beer, mean outward partaking of any a baptism or Lord's Supper, whatever else, alone do nothing, but by faith, they do build up the believer. So, um, so that's question 33. Hopefully that's somewhat clear. Uh, there's much that could be said about this. Just basically that in outward form, in outward administration, they are different from each other. And I think we'd all admit that regardless of what our backgrounds are. So, uh, welcome everybody. Anybody's just joined, uh, Isabella, you're welcome, uh, to the program and, uh, feel free to ask any questions in the chat. The YouTube's working. Uh, sadly, Sermon Audio is not. Sermon Audio doesn't have a chat function at this moment in time. Maybe they'll change that at some stage if uh, if anybody knows anybody who works in Sermon Audio. A chat function wouldn't be a bad idea. It wouldn't be a bad idea. Okay, so uh, question 34. Uh, of the, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism, how was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? The answer given here is... The, the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances which did all foresignify Christ then to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. So that just points out how it was administered in the past. It was administered by promises, prophecies, promises of what the seed of the woman would do, Genesis 3.15, for example, prophecies of, for example, Isaiah 53, uh, the suffering servant who would come, die, sacrifices the lamb that was slain, the scapegoat that was sent outside the city, um, circumcision, the removing of the filth of the flesh, Passover, the slaying of the lamb who would, um, there was that meal later then replaced by the Lord's Supper um, and other types and ordinances all pointing towards Christ and his in a very much a picture form, in like a picture book, pointing towards the Christ who would come, the Messiah who would come, and what he would do. Question 35 here. How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Here's where we may get into uh, (laughs) some controversial water, so keep me in prayer here. Um, But, so, so far, right, so we don't get lost. So far, we have dealt with the differences between the, the before and after the, the fall of Adam, before and after the fall of mankind. And before 
Adam, Adam fell, it was by works. Personal, perfect personal obedience. Obviously, Adam failed, and all, and that sin is imputed to all mankind, and in Adam all die, but in Christ all should be made alive. After the fall, the only way of relationship between man and God, between sinners and God, is by grace and by grace alone. Or another way of putting that is by the work of Christ alone based on the merits of Christ alone. Um, oh, okay, there's a question here. Better better answer this before we go forward. It is that types and shadows. So types and shadows, yeah, the types and shadows are ways in which the Old Testament was administered. Um, types, very simply, the lamb. Uh, the lamb that was slain. There's very much pictures of the lamb that was killed. Um John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And that's a type and a shadow pointing towards when Abraham offered Isaac, you know, he didn't offer Isaac after, but God intervened. And then uh, what, you know, remember during that exchange, was it in Genesis Genesis 18, Isaac asks, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. So that's just one example of a type and a shadow. Teaching the same provision, the same savior, um, who would come. Be much clearer in the New Testament, but in types and shadows and pictures and other ways in the Old Testament. Hopefully that answers your question. And um, if it doesn't, you can ask another question another way uh, in case I'm not clear enough. Uh, question 35. How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, the answer here gives, when Christ, the substance, we were talking about that earlier, the substance was exhibited, the same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word. And the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. So let's break this down and go through what question 35 of the larger catechism states. Under the New Testament, or even think of it like this, under the new administration of the covenant of grace. That's another way you could think of this as well. Um, if you go through Ephesians chapter 2, it's very clear that it's while there are a number of covenants, in a sense, they're all really viewed as one covenant. Under the New Testament, under the administration of the covenant of grace, the Larger Catechism says this, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word. That doesn't change at all. Through the preaching of the word. There was preaching in the day of Ezra and Nehemiah. There was preaching in the day of Moses. There was preaching in the day of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. So that hasn't changed. And the administration, it says in the sense, and the administration of the sacraments of baptism, this is different because there were 
types of baptisms in the Old Testament. The word baptism or baptismos basically means washings. If you go back to um, the Septuagint translation, you'll see some examples of some Hebrew words translated baptismos. There's also a, can't remember the exact reference off the top of my head, but in our English translation, the word various types of washings in Hebrews is, you can almost render it various types of baptisms. So the word baptism is basically, it was, in some ways it wasn't new. John the Baptist was coming along with a washing, a ceremonial washing. Um, of course, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ and New Testament baptism. It wasn't exactly the same as New Testament baptism, very, very similar to it in many respects, but very much pre preparing in a transitionary way for uh, baptism of the New Testament. So it, it's a type of washing. Sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness. It's more evident what's being place forth. The gospel is set forth between before sinners in both sacraments in terms of, I think it was the Dutch Reformed, we'll put it like this, as surely as water washes away the filth of, the, of your flesh, the blood of Christ will wash you clean from your sins. Obviously by faith, the person must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that the sacraments are signs and seals. They're there to reassure, they're there to build up, they're there to strengthen. They're not just there for ceremony. They're not just there as empty signs and seals. They, they're important spiritually. They're to, there to build up in a visible manner, setting forth the gospel before your eyes. Now, if somebody is received baptism and has is a covenant breaker, has never been born again, turns from the gospel, etc. and so on, well, it brings the wrath of God upon them. Baptism, in a way, saves. It brings more wrath upon them because the, the gospel has been set before them. Of course, you could say their youth and all that kind of stuff, but the more exposure that they have to the truth and the more they reject it, the more responsibility and the more wrath upon them if they've rejected the gospel. Um, the Lord's Supper as well. Because before we come... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I keep hitting things tonight. Before we come before the Lord's Supper, we're, we're to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. To make sure that we are not eating and drinking damnation unto ourselves. That we make sure that we are truly part of His body. So we're either being strengthened by the Lord's Supper, no matter how weak our faith is, or we're eating and drinking damnation unto ourselves, and it's a dangerous thing. If you are not a believer, partake of the Lord's Supper, and this is why ministers and elders need to fence the table, warning those who are not believers to stay away from the Lord's Supper. And if somebody... Yeah get into fencing issues, but it, it, it's important that, because in a lot of churches, it's just kind of the Lord's Supper is just distributed out without warning them of the importance 
So baptism and, and the Lord's Supper really set before in a visible way the truth that is in the Word of God. It has to be with the preaching of the Word of God. It can't be decoupled from it because apart from the Word of God, it has no meaning. We know what these things sign and seal because of what the Word of God tells us. Okay, now, question 36 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And again, feel free to ask questions if you are in the chat. Feel free to ask away. I'll do my best. <laughs> Can't promise to be able to answer everything. These, like, these are not, I think we always have to admit in areas like this our limitations. To often to be able to explain all the nuances and all the difficulties. Because even earlier I was talking about the covenant of grace, and that term can be understand understood in slightly different ways over the centuries by godly men. We're largely agreeing with each other, but some of the ways it is fleshed out and explained will, will vary from incredibly fantastic expositor to, to one toward another. Now, in the general scheme of things, there's massive agreement but sometimes the wording and sometimes the phrases will, will vary from person to person. For example, in eternity past, between God the Father and God the Son, the, within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, by many, including myself, I would fall into this category, would call that covenant the covenant of redemption. And then the expression of that in time is the covenant of grace. And there's the inner working of the covenant of grace, and then there's the outer administration of the covenant of grace. The outer administration would be baptism, Lord's Supper, but not everybody's saved. We know this. But the inner working, the inner work of the Spirit, that is what that previous question is really referring to. So it can get, at times, a bit confusing, even among people who largely agree with each other. There's a massive amount of agreement between one and the other. There are there are some places where we would disagree. Um, but usually within reform circles, and I'm talking about Westminster, Heidelberg, Synod of Dort, etc. These some of these disagreements are very much minority views. Some good men hold them, but largely there's mostly. There's a lot more agreement than disagreement, is what I'll say. Um, we may not have exactly the same way of expressing it, so it can get confusing and it can be misunderstood at times. Anyway, question 36 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator, it says here, of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time being man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. So, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe this. There's only one mediator in the, that covenant of grace. Notice, and the covenant of grace is very clearly after the fall. The only way that anybody after the fall can have any relationship with God is through the work of Christ. Now, 
in the Old Testament, it's believers looking forward to the Messiah who would come, the suffering servant, believing in the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. And in the New Testament, we have it, it more, more fully, but it's the same Savior, the same by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The end of uh, Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about why many of them died in the wilderness and did not enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. It was by faith. It wasn't through their works. It was by faith that they got the, the, the land. Now, this isn't to say that every single one of them was. Because disobedience, our disobedience shows what? Unbelief. So there is faith shown in an outward sense of obedience, of course. But there is faith, and it must be faith in Messiah and trusting in the Messiah in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Question 37. Question 37. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer here. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. Now, I'm wondering if I should really wrap it up here, because this is kind of getting into another topic of Christ and him and his role as mediator, and I think I should really cover this in a kind of a separate topic rather than going into this here, but the covenant of grace. So let's wrap up. If there's any questions, please feel free to, if there's anything that hasn't been made clear or anything like that. A few things for those who would like to go a little bit deeper. Um, <laughs> hopefully a lot of this hasn't gone over your head. Hopefully it's wet, wet your appetite and hopefully you'll want to study this more. And it's not that you want to take a man's theology and supersede on the Bible. No, we want to be convinced that this is from the scriptures and this is God is working between the relationship is by covenant. We want to be convinced from the scriptures that this is the truth. Now, there's a couple of books. If you want to get a lot deeper into a lot of these topics, um, and again, if you want to start off simply, catechisms, probably writings by Thomas Watson and things like this, but there's an excellent work that was released, I think it was about 10 years ago, it was published, uh, Unity and Continuity in Covenantal Thought. Um, it's a study in the Reformed tradition to the Westminster Assembly. It was written by Andrew A. Woolsey. Andrew A. Woolsey was a... Uh, preacher up here in Northern Ireland. He's, I'm pretty sure he still lives up here in Northern Ireland. He was a minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Northern Ireland for about 19 years. Joel Beakey got a hand of his, I think it was his college dissertation or something. It was his PhD. Or I'm not sure. 
But he was studying this, and he wrote this massive manuscript. Joe Beakey loved it and wanted it published, and it's excellent. It really is, but it's it's really if you want to get a lot deeper into the history of it and all that. I know some people from... One or, I've read one or two reviews where people found it hard. Um, I think it's I think it's excellently written personally. Uh, he says this. This is um, Andrew A. Woolsey's comment on the different. Remember we were talking about earlier about the different covenants, and there's the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption, and a bit of a disagreement even among the Westminster divines at this time over the exact language. And listen here to what. Woolsey says about this, says, by the time the confession was drawn up, many theologians were already speaking in terms of three covenants, the covenant of works between God and Adam, a pre-temporal intra-Trinitarian covenant of redemption concerning the salvation of the elect. So that's pre-temporal, it's before time, intra-Trinitarian within the members of the Trinity, covenant of redemption. That's basically before time in eternity past concerning the salvation of the elect. And and just so I don't lose people here, the whole idea is God the Father, God the Son, agreeing, obviously, with the Holy Spirit as well. We don't want to forget any of the members of the, the Trinity. But God the Father electing before the foundation of the world, God the Son agreeing to die for his people. In a sense, it's a, it's a covenant of works because it's the work of Christ which purchased a people and then the spirit of god agreeing you could say to apply salvation to those people in time and then he says this is Woolsey, and the covenant of grace between god and elect sinners others insisted on only two covenants the covenant of works with adam and the covenant of grace with christ and the elect reformed opinion has been divided on the issue ever since both sides seek to substantiate their views from scripture neither usher that's Archbishop Usher, Ball, nor the Confession employed the three covenant framework. The Confession did not even state explicitly with whom the covenant of grace was made, although the larger catechism, which we read earlier, was more forthright, we quoted that, which says, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. So if you want to go through the more historical points and the little, the developments of this from a historical point of view, I would urge, I would recommend this if you want to get into more that end of things. And just to recommend another book, I haven't read these books in a long time. This is about maybe eh, eight years ago I wrote and read Andrew Woolsey's book. Really good book, by the way. Really good book. And then another good book that probably read this maybe when was it? Maybe three, four years ago. I've well highlighted. This is a collection of essays. Uh, if you you're reading Covenant theology and you want to go a little bit deeper, you're asking questions. What about the Mosaic economy? What about is is the Mosaic covenant? Is that part of the covenant of grace? Now, this is one of the areas which is a bit more difficult to explain, and where there will be some who will disagree. I believe it's part of the covenant of grace. And it was a minority view that it was part of the covenant of works within the reformed camp. There was some kind of republication or something like that. I disagree with the whole idea of republication. Now, I hope I haven't 
lost anyone at this point. But if you want to get deeper into this, and if you want, if you're confused by any of the topics of whether it was the covenant of grace and all this kind of stuff, I would, if you want to get this, Cornelius P. Venema, I don't know when this came out, Christ and Covenant Theology, Essays on Election, Republication, and the Covenants. Again, this is only really, if you read a number of books on this, there's some parts of Covenant Theology you still scratch your head about. He goes into a number of uh, topics, talks about the Covenant of Works, talks about the Covenant of Grace, um, because that's kind of what you, you need to do, really. You need to kind of go away and, and read some of this. He talks about also, near the end of the book, things to do with justification, federal vision. In the last few chapters, he talks about federal vision, and he also looks at, and if you want to remember, does a really good job on refuting anti-rights interpretation of Romans 5, 12 to 21. So, um, yeah. So that's that would be, that's a book for, if you want to go deeper into the theological, I loved it. But some people might find it heavy read. So um, I it's not the first book I would recommend. Where would I start? Probably go with, again, your catechisms or something like that. Um, so, yes, uh, thank you so much, everybody who's listened in. Uh, if you've got questions, we get a radio at gmail.com. I think we'll just leave it there for tonight. And... Uh, if there's other topics you would like me to cover separately, uh, I try the the search bar on megidoradio.com and you might find sometimes that I've dealt with some of these topics, some of these topics you may have questions about in the past. It may be topics to do with Calvinism or whatever else and reform theology, stuff I haven't dealt with tonight. So I... Look at me, go to migratorradio.com, go into the search bar, or even look at the tabs at the bottom of the page. It might bring you towards the question, but if it doesn't answer it, migratorradio at gmail.com. This has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.